Greetings and welcome. Glad you guys are here. Welcome to worship. I'm glad that you come to join with us this morning. Uh, and look, we are aware that it is uh, the beginning of spring break for a lot of people. I imagine there's a lot more folks watching online uh, today or might be listening to the podcast. And so welcome to you as well, but a special welcome to everybody who's worshiping with us right here in the room. Thank you all for being here today. Hey, listen, if you were not here last week, you might not have been able to celebrate with us. We had some baptisms. Uh, this is Ashley Stanley uh, who got baptized last week. Super excited for that. And then the second service, Sean Bean. Uh, that's Bean with an N. That was probably my misspelling. Uh, Sean Bean. Uh, got uh, baptized yesterday uh, or last Sunday as well. It is always exciting. We get to celebrate folks in baptism. We're actually doing that second service here today. We've got baptisms really lined up straight through Easter. It is a joyous thing to watch people professing their faith in Christ and following through in believers' baptism. If you need to do that, man, listen, call up to the church office. We would love to start that process with you as well. But now, grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be in just a few minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, uh, as we continue our series called The Repenters. And look, I hope you've been tracking with us over the course of this whole series. Uh, and look, I hope at this point also, this is becoming a joyous process for you. Now, that might seem like an odd thing to say uh, in a series called The Repenters. If you've ever had to repent of anything, sometimes that's not joyous in the moment. In fact, it can be a little bit painful. Uh, but when we truly get into the habit of being a repenting people, a consistently repenting people, this actually leads us into greater joy. You see, we've learned a few things over the course of this series. We have learned that all of us are in a fight with our flesh. That even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are saved, and yet we are still dealing with this indwelling sin. These desires that though we have been set free from them are still drawing us away from the Lord. And so we have to fight against the flesh. But the good news is, is that, listen, Jesus has saved us from this. He says, listen, when I, you gave your life to Jesus Christ, when you repented that very first time and you turned to the Lord and said, God, I need help, he saved us completely. You were completely and totally justified in him. All of your sins were forgiven. You were adopted into the very life of God himself. All your sins, past, present, and future, you were justified in him, and you will never lose this. You never have to worry about losing this salvation we have found in the work of Jesus Christ. Not our work, but his work. But now we're in the process of sanctification. He says, now that you are saved, listen, I want to transform you to make you like me, to help you become holy, sanctified. And so this whole life is a process of us growing in godliness, growing in our salvation. So we're learning not to sow to the flesh, because when we do that, that ultimately leads to death and destruction. Instead, we want to learn how to sow to the Spirit, because when we do that, it brings sanctification, transformation. We become more like Him. And so there's joy in this process, even though we constantly discover things that we need to repent of, I never have to worry that I'm going to be abandoned. The Lord has saved me, and I can be transformed. And so when we become a repenting people, on all levels, in all ways, we're constantly open to the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us to repentance. We know that it's leading us great into deeper and deeper parts of our salvation, into more and more of the eternal life that God saved us for. 
So I'm glad that you're on this journey with us. But for this last few weeks, as we head up into Easter, I want to look at a few of the very specific battles that we are mainly going to face when it comes to the flesh. What are some of the main battlefields that we are all going to have to fight on as we enter into this war with the flesh? And this morning, we're going to be looking at one that we all wrestle with, and that is the area of sexual temptation. Sexual temptation. Let me show you this in Galatians 5.19. We've looked at this passage a few different times over the course of the series. Uh, but listen to what Paul says in, in this huge long list. Right before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he gives a big list of all the works of the flesh. And verse 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident or obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. Now he's going to go on to talk about a bunch of others, but the very first thing he's going to tackle are sexual temptations. And all three of these words really have that flair. They are all associated with sexual temptation in some way. And you'll notice as this happens often, whenever you see lists like this, typically sexual temptations are right off the bat. They're some of the first ones that, they, that are mentioned. This is not because they are the worst sins or they're unforgivable sins, but these are some of the strongest desires that we are going to have to wrestle with. And, and so right off the bat, he's going to mention sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. Now before we go any farther, I think it's important for us to mention that Whenever we find ourselves tempted by something, we are almost always tempted by something that has been perverted from something that was originally good. Almost everything that draws us away from the Lord is in itself probably not bad. It's simply been perverted. It's been pushed beyond its proper bounds. And that's absolutely true when it comes to sexual desire. This is actually something that's very good. It's created by God. But what our flesh is going to want to do is it's going to pervert that, put it outside of the bounds that God has set for it. And when we do that, that's when it leads to our destruction. That's when it leads us into sin and ultimately to death. But we'll look at those three words there for just a second. First off, sexual morality. This is the Greek word porneo. That word might be familiar to you. This is where we get the English word pornography. And what this word means is kind of a catch-all term for any sexual activity outside of marriage. God has set bounds for sex, and he says, listen, it is to happen inside of a heterosexual married context. Period. End of story. These are the bounds that I have set for it. And this word sexual morality, porneo, is when we take sex outside of that context and put it anywhere else. I cannot tell you the number of times I've been asked over the years, Adam, does the Bible really say that you cannot have sex outside of marriage? Does it really say that? And I love this because this is one of the places I can be emphatic. And this is not a question mark. This is the, there are many interpretations. Yes, it does. It's right there. It says it bold. That's what the word means. This word shows up 39 times in the New Testament alone. 39 times. If you include the Old Testament parallels, 93. It's everywhere. He says it clearly uh, again and again. He says, look, you're not meant for sexual immorality. All right, so that's kind of the catch-all term. Second word uh, is uh, acarthasia. That's the word for impurity, acarthasia. And this is kind of the defilement that sexual sin brings to us, kind of the, 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 the impurity that sexual sin is going to bring upon us. Right? There, there are consequences for sexual sin. It begins to harden our hearts. It begins to darken our mind. This is the impurity that happens when we indulge in sin instead of into the ways of the Lord. Now, this Greek word akarthasia has an opposite, and that opposite is the word karthasia. And that word means 
purity or purification. So in 1 John 1, 9, when the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word for cleanse is carthasia. All right, so on, on, when you have impurity and we follow after the flesh, it defiles us. But when we repent, God says, not only are you forgiven, you can be cleansed, you can be purified, you can be transformed. And this is what God wants to bring to us, but that's not what sexual temptation brings to us. And then finally, sensuality. This is the word asalgia, uh, and this is an interesting word, uh, but it means completely uh, unrestrained sexual desire. These are people who say, I do not care what anybody thinks. I don't care if you think it's weird. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if it bothers you or, or offends you. I am going to do whatever I want to do. Completely and totally unrestrained sexual desire. That is an asogia. So you can, uh, it's sometimes translated debauchery as well as sensuality. And so these three words really are kind of covering the gamut of the sexual temptations that we're all going to face in some way at some time. Now look, we all struggle in different ways. What, what, what tempts you might not tempt somebody else, but all of us struggle in some of these ways. How do we know that? Well, because you actually see this all throughout the scriptures. Let me show you a few. Here's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, Paul says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Right, so you see two of those words right there, sexual morality or impurity. Hey, these should not be among us. Go to the next one. Here's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. I think I'm just going to end right there. That's the whole sermon right there. Is that not? I mean, look, that's it. That's like as plain as you can make it. It's right there. But he mentions sexual immorality. Go to the next one here. Here's Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. There's that word. Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We've quoted that multiple times in this series. Look at the context. He's specifically talking about this kind of unchecked sexual temptation in us. And so, look, you see this all throughout the New Testament. But some of you are going to say, Adam, listen, I came at the nine service. Listen, I'm not dealing with that. That is not my deal. I, 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 just, Adam, be happy. I'm not struggling in any of those ways. It's fine. I just don't think I really have a struggle in this area, which sounds great until we read this. Uh, so here's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last week, we looked at a passage in the Sermon on the Mount where he taught us about prayer and fasting. Listen to what Jesus says in talking to everyone. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And at that, everybody just threw up their hands and rolled their eyes. Because, I mean, who's left? I mean, that's everybody, Right? I mean, listen, I think this is true. You can flip that and say for women, for men, or however it goes. It says, look, everybody would probably in that crowd say the vast majority of us have not committed adultery. But once Jesus says this, he goes, if you've even had the intent, even if you didn't follow through with it, but you're letting those desires run unchecked in your heart. You're letting that flesh kind of run all through your mind. It is the same as if you had actually followed through, which means that's all of us. 
No one can say they have never struggled here. No one can say they've never fallen in some way. This is not some of us. This is all of us. When it comes to sexual temptation, this is not a problem for those people or some other people. It's for all people. It's for us. And if you ignore that, you do so at your peril. Listen, this is just one of those things that we're all going to have to wrestle with. We're all going to have to deal with. But praise be to God that we have good news. He says, even when we fail, we can repent. The Lord Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. There is a pathway of salvation and sanctification through Jesus Christ our Lord. But we must be ready to repent when we discover these things in ourselves. And this, by the way, is where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. Hopefully you've got that there in your copy of God's Word or on your device. Uh, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. I want you to look at what he says here. Paul's uh, had an up and down relationship with the Corinthians. But here at the end of the letter, here's what he says. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Did you guys notice those three words there at the end? It's the exact same three words he's going to quote in Galatians 5. Those same three words we just looked at, that we see sprinkled through all, all of those things, those same three words you find here, sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. But here's the more interesting part. Who is he talking about? Who is he worried about? He's not worried about the lost Gentiles. He's not worried about the lost in general. He says, no, the people I'm worried about are the Corinthians, the Christians. The people within the Corinthian church, he says, listen, I'm come back and I'm worried that there are people in the church who have not repented of what they have done. The people who have done this sexual morality, this impurity, this sensuality are the very people who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. These things can and do happen right here within the congregation of the Lord. And he says that what they have not done is, is that they have not repented. Now, this word for repent, this is actually the key word that you find mostly throughout the New Testament. There's a few different words, but this is the main one. It's metanoeo, uh, and it has a very clear meaning. To repent means this. It means to change your mind that then leads to a change of lifestyle. It means a change of mind that leads to a change of lifestyle. It is not simply a change of lifestyle. Anybody can stop doing something for any length of time. You might look at somebody and outwardly say, well, I haven't done those things. But remember what Jesus said. I mean, look, we got to look at the heart, too. This is what Paul is worried about. He says, listen, it looks like some of these Corinthians have stopped doing some of these things. But I suspect that they actually haven't repented of these things. There hasn't been a change of mind. We have not agreed with the Lord that what was being done was wrong. Lord, this was a sin. I see now what it is. And Lord, I turn from this. I agree with you. You are right. You are holy. And so Lord, I turn my back so much so that I'm going to change my lifestyle. By your power, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, you can change me. But I turn my back on those things. That is repentance. Not simply a change of what happens and what I do, but a deeper change at the heart level 
this is what repentance is, and this is what he is after. And so that is important for us if we're going to see what's going on. Now, uh, to understand what they were repenting of and why Paul is so concerned, we're going to need to go back into 1 Corinthians. And so flip back now uh, to a book before, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You should know that the Corinthians were a contentious bunch. Uh, they would typically kind of rebel against uh, Paul's authority. They would rebel, rebel against any authority. Uh, most of the Corinthian church are not Jews. Most of them were Gentiles. They had grown up in a very licentious Roman culture. They had grown up around uh, idols and all of the practices that go with that. They had grown up in a very sexually lax Roman culture. And, and so the ideas of, of following in sexual purity, following after the Lord, were foreign to a lot of the Corinthians. And so... Many of them just rebelled against that. When they hear about God's ideas uh, about walking in, in sexual purity, they, they just didn't understand it. And not only did they not understand it, they began to fight against it. And so hear what is happening. This is what Paul's really uh, working on. If you read the entire letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll find out that there's uh, someone in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. Uh, so there's that. Uh, nobody's calling him out on that, by the way. Uh, you had people going to prostitutes during the week and then showing up for church on Sunday, and they thought that was fine. Uh, you had people having sex outside of marriage, and they thought that was fine. You had a lot of different issues with a lot of different people. And here's their response. Starting at verse 12, it says this. All things are lawful for me, uh, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price so Glorify God with your body. This is the problem in Corinth. The problem is not that they are doing these things. It's that they aren't even struggling with these things. They, are, they aren't even recognizing that it's a sin at all. Instead, they are defending it. Go back to that first slide. You'll notice these quotation marks uh, here uh, where they say all things are lawful. Most commentators believe that these are slogans that the Corinthians are saying. This is how they've defended themselves to Paul. When Paul said, hey, these things are not okay, they are not holy, they reply back with, all things are lawful for me. Adam, I'm a Christian. I I'm not bound to the law anymore. Adam, I've been forgiven of all of my sins. And so now all things are lawful for me. But that is abuse of the grace that God gives to us. Simply because we're being forgiven doesn't mean we ought to sin more just so that grace may increase. Second one says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is the equivalent of today of just people going, I have needs. Look, it's just physical. 
Look, look, this is just a physical act. I have a physical desire. And just like I, I satisfy my, my hunger with food, I need to satisfy this desire as well. This is just natural, Paul. I don't know what you're in all a huff about. Which is interesting because we have more slogans like that today, do we not? Where people say, Adam, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's just not that big a deal. Adam, as long as we're both consenting, it's fine. I mean, look, well, I love him. I love her. And apparently that just covers up all things. And, and says that that just trumps all uh, kind of considerations whatsoever. We have the same kind of slogans. It's interesting that 2,000 years later, things don't really change a whole lot, do they? Now, let, let's be very clear here. We want to be very clear what Paul is worried about here. He is not worried about sexual desire itself. And we need to be very clear. Because there's been some confusion about this in the church over really the past few hundred years. Paul is not worried about sexual desire. Why? Because sexual desire by itself is good. It is made by God himself. God is not ashamed of it. He, he doesn't turn away from it. He's not, he, he doesn't regret creating it. He says, no, look at verse 16. He's actually going to quote this in the passage. He says, the two will become one flesh. Well, he's quoting Genesis where God creates man and woman. He builds sex within our very makeup. When he creates marriage, he creates sex for the context of marriage. He says, listen, I did this on purpose. I declared it good. I meant this to be a good gift for you, and he still does. When it comes to sexual desire, Paul's not worried about sexual desire itself. He's worried about sexual desire outside of its proper bounds. But we don't ever have to worry about desire itself. In its proper context, it can actually be celebrated. And it should be in proper ways. But when our flesh wants to push this out of proper bounds, when our flesh wants to turn this into uh, something else, that's when we have a problem. And so Paul here is saying, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not angry at sex. I'm not worried about, uh, about sexual desire. What I'm worried about is our flesh taking these desires out of their proper bounds where God has established them. Our sexual desire needs to stay within the context for which it was created. Now, this is where everybody freaks out, right? This is where everybody gets all mad and they say, Adam, how dare you put rules on sex? Who are you to tell me who I should sleep with or how I should do that or what's that supposed to be or how it's supposed to look? Which, P.S., I am not telling you anything. God has been saying this from the beginning. All right, so if you have a problem, please take it up with him. But everybody flips out. They say, you are just being so repressive. You are being so puritanical. How dare you? We have evolved. Okay, listen, we ought to be free. We're wise. Okay, we can do whatever we want with sex. There should be no rules when it comes to our sexual desire. And that is patently absurd. It is patently absurd. If you think about this for longer than just a few seconds, you will see how absurd it is. There's a few different reasons for that. Number one. All good gifts need to be channeled in order to remain good. All good gifts need to be channeled in order to remain good. This is true not only with sexual desire, but with really anything. Think about a river. A river is an unbelievable blessing to any area. There's a reason why cities are built on rivers. It brings all kinds of blessings uh, to an area in a lot of different ways. When a river is inside of its banks, it can be an unbelievable blessing. When a river is at fledge stage, it becomes destructive. It becomes damaging instead of a blessing like it was. 
You ever try to play a game without any rules? Seriously, try to play a game with anybody without any rules. Do you know what you'll find out? You are no longer playing a game. If you play a game with someone and no one is obeying the rules, the game is over. There's no game. It doesn't work. You can't actually do that. It doesn't work. Why? You need rules in order for this to actually work amongst people. Or just take any privilege we have, like driving. Driving is wonderful. It's incredible. We have this freedom to go different places and, and to do different things. It brings a lot of blessing into your life as long as you obey speed limits and stop signs. When you start going 90 through a residential area, when you start ignoring the, the lines on the road, when you try to take your sedan off-roading, bad things happen. People get hurt. People get killed. The car gets hurt. The car gets killed. Listen, when you take this good gift outside of its proper bounds, what was a blessing now becomes a curse. To assume that simply because something is good, there should be no rules on it is patently absurd. It doesn't actually make sense that way. Here's the other thing. When people say that, Adam, how dare you say there should be any restrictions on my sexual desire? There's an assumption there. And the assumption is, is that all of my desires are inherently good. That all of my desires are inherently good. And we now know that that's not true. We are all dealing with a flesh that wants to run amok. That will naturally go without bounds. And it's weird. We have no problem checking ourselves in other areas. Can you imagine what our lives would be like if you and I never checked ourselves? We never checked what we were, wanted to say, or what we did, or what we bought, or what we ate. Imagine if every single time you had an impulse, you bought it, you ate it, you said it, you did it. Can you imagine that? Your life would be terrible. Don't do that, seriously. But you don't. We naturally check ourselves. We know that there are limits to our desires. Why then would not the same thing be true when it comes to our sexual desires? Here's the third thing. It's just empirically false. When people just live a completely licentious lifestyle, they have zero check on their sexual desires, it doesn't actually lead to your blessing. It leads to a curse. The, I, I could go on and on and on here, but I'll just show you one. Uh, here's a quote I saw the other day, uh, and this just fascinated me. This is from the Institute for Family Studies, uh, which is not a Christian organization. Uh, it just came out this year. Here's what it said. Surprisingly, uh, religious 20-somethings who marry directly without cohabitating appear to have the lowest divorce rates. So it's saying, listen, if you don't live together and you follow the Lord, those are the people who have the lowest divorce rates. Do you know what my favorite word in this entire quote is? Surprisingly. Did you notice that? The people who made this study are like going, we didn't think this would happen. We had no idea. Do you know who did? The Lord. For two millennia and more. He's been saying this forever. And our culture is just now discovering that maybe God has a point. Look, when you actually study this, what you find is that an unchecked sexual desire, when you put no limits, you just do whatever your flesh tells you to do, this does not lead to your blessing, it actually leads to a curse. Now look, our culture is crazy when it comes to sex and sexuality, and I have no time today to talk about that. Well, we'll talk about that later this year and what our culture is doing when it comes uh, to the subject of sex and sexuality. But honestly, I'm not interested in, in folks who are outside of the church. What I really want to talk about is us. Because remember, the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. The problem isn't for other people. The problem is for all of us. And before we ever point fingers at anybody else, the first one ought to point to us. Is there any place where we have not repented 
of our past sins because of an unchecked sexual desire. Because look, I know without a doubt that those things exist inside the church. They do. There's a lot of things that we are struggling with. You may be watching, you may be listening. There's a lot of things that we are struggling with as a people. There's lots of them. The first one is this, it's just sex outside of marriage. We're going to find ourselves tempted and say, Adam, listen, I'm with this person and I just want to have sex outside of marriage. There is no place for that. That is technically sexual immorality. You can call it whatever you want. That's what the Bible calls it. It's porneo. It's sexual immorality, and it's expressly forbidden. This means that if you are single, engaged, divorced, or even widowed, the Bible says that that there's no place for that. Listen, there's a proper place for sex, and it's within the marriage covenant. That's where it can flourish. This is where it can be helpful. But when you take it outside of that context, it begins to hurt you. There is no excuse to where you and I are the exception to this. We see this even amongst believers. We certainly saw it in the Corinthian church. The second thing is pornography. Our culture has been steadily trying to normalize pornography in our area or in our culture. And it used to be that you had to go like looking for pornography. Now pornography comes looking for you. If you are online in any way, shape, or form, it is going to come looking for you. And if you are not careful, if you're not putting things in place, it is going to come looking for you. And what do you do with it when that happens? Because it's not an if, it's a when. Which, P.S., we did not invent this. Uh, I have been over to Rome, I've been to the Colosseum, and they've got all kinds of museums there. And if you look around, I've actually seen pornography etched in on pottery uh, from 2,000 years ago. We did not invent this. We just invented new ways of, of, of just serving it up to people. And we say, well, I don't, I'm not doing that, and I, I pray that you aren't, but there's all kinds of ways. This is kind of worming its way into our culture, and we're finding reasons to justify it when we shouldn't. Can we stop defending Game of Thrones as if it's not pornography? Can we just stop? Like, stop pretending to do it. Just because they wrapped it up with dragons, you know, and Lord of the Rings like helmets. Please, please stop pretending it's not what it is. But I like the show. I, that's fine. But call it what it is. We cannot keep making excuses for this. Look, did you know in Roman culture, when, when people came of age, when young boys came of age, Roman culture, they would take them to a prostitute. That, that's what they would do that, when, when men came of age. I cannot believe that. That's terrible. Except that we're going to give phones to our children that almost ensures that they're going to be exposed to pornography at younger and younger ages. We have to be alive and aware of these things, and we certainly don't make provision for this. P.S. You say, well, Adam, I'm using this in context of my marriage. This is going to degrade the happiness and the stability of your marriage. It's, it, it is. It will. Are we making provisions for the flesh that we should not? Thirdly, adultery. This has always been a problem, not just for us, but for people in general. The Bible says here to flee sexual immorality. Are you fleeing sexual immorality? Are you flirting with it? Or we find ourselves inching closer and closer to that. You're beginning to loosen your standards a little bit or kind of weaken your guard just a little bit. You find yourself dancing closer and closer to something you said you would never do. Which, P.S., please don't think yourself above it. Please do not assume that you will never do this. You say, I don't want to do this. I believe you. But please don't think you are, you are above this. No one is above this. I am not above this. You are not above this. No one is above this. The moment you start thinking you're above this and you don't have to worry about it, that's probably one of the most dangerous places you can be. Because that's when you start cutting corners and you find yourself dancing closer and closer to that edge. 
Listen, I have heard the stories about what happens on these business trips when you're away from your family. Do we jump in with those? Do, do we follow suit? Or do we make deliberate changes to say, no, I'm, I'm not going to put myself in harm's way in a bad situation? We always have to be alive to the temptation for adultery. And then there's just any other perversion in, in our hearts. There's any other perversion of, uh, of sex in, in our hearts that we're letting run amok, even if you're not following through with it, if you're just letting that run unchecked in your soul and what you're, you're watching, reading, or even just what you're thinking. Are we, just, are we just letting those run? Or instead, do we do what Paul is encouraging here? Do we repent? When we discover these things in our soul, when we find ourselves tempted, and we will all be tempted in some way, do we find ourselves saying, Father, I agree with you, and I am sorry, I need help. Jesus, I want to turn away from that. I, I agree with you so much, Lord, I turn away from that, but I need your help to transform me, to cleanse me, and to make me more like you. I repent, and there's going to be a change of lifestyle as a result. And if you say, Adam, I just don't feel myself there yet. I don't feel that need for repentance. Let me just point out a few reasons why I think we need to repent. And they come out of this 1 Corinthians chapter 6 passage. First off, we need to see the unique impact of sexual sin. We need to see the unique impact of sexual sin. Look at verse 18 for a moment. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, this is a weird line. And there's been a lot of interpretation about this over the years. Of what is Paul actually meaning here? Because he uses the word body in multiple contexts in this passage. But even if we don't land on one of those, there, there's a couple things you can know for sure. First off, he says this, every other sin is different from sexual sin. Every other sin is different from sexual sin. It's not the worst sin. It's not an unforgivable sin. This does not keep you from being saved. This does not make you not saved. But here's the, here's the thing. But sexual sin is unique in its effects. It is different from shoplifting. It is different from getting in a fight with somebody else. Why? Well, because... Sex is spiritual. It is going to affect you as a whole person. You see, the Corinthians thought that you could separate body and spirit, body and soul, that they were different. And what you did with your body was fine, but your spirit was a completely different thing. Jesus says otherwise. He was raised physically from the grave. He didn't raise as a spirit. He raised bodily from the grave. Your body matters and when we take our bodies and we engage them in sexual sin, what happens is it affects us spiritually in ways we are not fully aware of. This is why he is saying, listen, if you, you go to see a prostitute, you have united with her. There's been a uniting there, whether you like it or not. There's been a, a, a connection there. This is why sex is supposed to be inside of a marriage context. It's supposed to be a help. It's supposed to be a blessing. It actually binds couples together. When you take that outside of that context, well, now this is beginning to wound your soul. It's doing more than we actually think it's doing. So when we say, it's not hurting anybody else, or I have complete control over it. It's not bothering anybody but me. No, this is, this is wounding us in ways we don't fully understand. Here's the second thing. Our bodies are part of Christ. Our bodies 
are part of Christ. Look at verse 15 for a moment. Look what it says there. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then look at verse 19. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? What he's saying there is, is like, when you and I engage in sexual morality, this, this shows that we don't truly understand our salvation. When you and I got saved, God didn't just change your status on some ledger in heaven. No, something deeply profound occurred. We were changed. We went from being a part of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We went being, uh, from being enemies of God to being his sons and his daughters. He transforms us. He puts his spirit in us. We are quite literally in Christ, and Christ is in us. This is how much he loves us. This is how much he cares for us. He wants us close. He wants us to know him. And so now, yes, our very bodies become the temple of God himself. And in the same way there was the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there were so many rules and regulations because they wanted to keep it holy. They wanted to honor that. Do we not recognize that for us to engage in unchecked sexual desire, if we just run off into sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality, we're taking Jesus right along with us. Paul makes a starting claim. He says, would you drag Jesus in to go see a prostitute? It's meant to bring up anger and disgust. He's saying it on purpose. But he's saying, but that's what you're doing. If that's what you are doing, you're taking Jesus with you. Why? Because he's in you. You are in him. Do you not understand the incredible joy of salvation? We misunderstand what is going on. Do we not see that our bodies are the very temple of the Holy Spirit? And then here's uh, the third thing. We are bought at a price. Look at verse 19. He says this. He says, you are not your own. Verse 20, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is reminding them of the unbelievable price that Jesus Christ paid to save us from these very sins. When we throw up slogans like, it doesn't matter, it's fine for me, it's just physical, these things, we are not understanding the unbelievable price that Jesus Christ paid for our salvation. You see, instead, uh, instead of just giving uh, desires, a kind of unchecked, free reign, Jesus did something different. He took his body and he offered it up for us. Instead of trying to just feed every desire that our flesh may have, Jesus Christ took his body and says, no, I want to give my body to be broken, my blood to be spilled because of how much I love you. He means you. He means me. What an unbelievable price has been paid for us. How could we then just run off into sin or defend sin in any form, but certainly in this form, when we see the incredible price that has been paid, that this is what Jesus had to endure in his body, in his blood, that was broken, sacrificed for us, that we might have life. How could we ignore that and ignore his commands, ignore his will, ignore his wisdom, and run off into unchecked sexual immorality? Instead, we should repent. We should repent. And, and please hear me when I say this. Look, I, I know that a, a topic like this is hard to talk about. It, this very well might have brought up 
some very uncomfortable things for you. I'm not going to ask you about it. I don't expect you to tell me about it. But you still might feel these things and be reminded of things from our past or even things that are more recent. And you, you might feel a level of shame for that. And the purpose of this is certainly not to bring shame upon us. But, but we need to be reminded of these things. Why? So they can be brought into the light and cleansed. This is what the Lord wants to do. He wants to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even though it's painful to have these things brought up into the light, until we do, there will be no transformation. Until we bring these things to the Lord and say, God, I'm wrong about this. I'm sorry about this. Until we turn, there will not be any transformation. We will always be at risk of just heading right back in to the same old thing. And so the Lord says, repent. Repent. Break the cycle for you. Break the cycle for everybody else. Because you see, if you don't, then it just, it just continues to run unchecked. It's interesting. I've heard this story from many of you uh, over the past where people say, Adam, listen, I, I grew up in the church. I know the Lord. But then I went to college, and I did not follow the Lord. Uh, I, I did other things uh, and things I'm not proud of. But guess what? I'm back, uh, and it was great. And so we're just going to put it all behind us, and then we're going to move forward, which is awesome, until you have kids and until you have kids who come of age. And then you find yourself in a spot where they're heading off to college, and you have a question to ask, are you going to tell them to follow after the Lord, knowing that you didn't do that? Are you going to tell them to do certain things, knowing that you didn't? And for some people, they say, well, Adam, I can't, who am I? I can't tell them that they should follow the Lord. I didn't do it. That would be hypocritical of me to tell my kids not to do that. Do you see how damaging that is? Do you see what unrepentant sin can do decades later? When we're more worried about trying to be consistent and not being seen to be a hypocrite instead of recognizing that this sin has hurt us and it will hurt others. Don't we understand? Wouldn't it be better simply to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I know you love me. You're not bringing this up to, to shame me, but you want to transform me. You want to heal me. And so, Lord, finally, I just want to say, yes, you were right. And I was wrong. And I turn from this. And Lord, will you bring cleansing to me? I can't do it. But through your sacrifice and what you have done, would you bring cleansing to me? I have had impurity. Would you bring me to purity? I had acarthasia. Would you bring me to carthasia? Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And watch the Lord bring a transformation to you, to your family, and then to a church, and then to a culture. It has to start with us first. The Lord's not trying to shame us. He's trying to heal us. Is there anything that we need to repent of? So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And we're going to spend some time in worship as we close out our service. And I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you. But I know there's probably almost no one in this room who can say this doesn't apply to me in some way. The enemy is relentless. Our flesh tempts, draws, pulls. And maybe the Lord has brought up uh, an area of our life that we just haven't been willing to let go of. Maybe we find ourselves like the Corinthians trying to defend the indefensible. Trying to make excuses for what deep down we know we shouldn't. Again, the Lord's trying to help you. He loves you. 
And that unchecked desire will do nothing but destroy us in the end. And so if the Lord brings something to mind, could even now, could you just repent? Just admit it. And say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I tried to defend this, you're right, I'm wrong. And Lord, I just need you to cleanse me, I'm sorry. And he will. He will. He wants to bring sanctification, transformation. Could you let him bring healing to you today? Or maybe there's a change you need to make. I don't know what it is. Again, you don't have to tell me. But if we truly repent, that, that means a change of lifestyle as well. As we change our minds, let the Lord open up pathways to say, no, I want to walk in obedience. And so, Lord, I follow after you. I follow after you. Let him bring the joy of transformation. So, Father, help us. My brothers, my sisters, my mothers and fathers in this room, younger brothers and sisters. Lord, as we all stumble through this life and as we all wrestle with these temptations in different ways, in different degrees, Lord, not a one of us can say that, that we're completely pure in this area. But you knew that, and you loved us anyway. You knew that, and you came after us anyway. You knew all about that, and you gave your life for us anyway. And so, Father, recognizing the unbelievable grace that you give us, and the salvation and change that comes in you and you alone, Lord, we simply repent today and say we're sorry. And we say thank you for loving us even while we are sinners. And Lord, we ask you to be the one to turn us, transform us as we sow to your spirit instead of to our flesh. Heal us as a people, Lord, that we might show the incredible joy of what following after you truly is like. Father, cleanse us today. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand up with me if you will. We're going to sing some songs of worship. These altars are open. I'm here if you'd like to talk or you need somebody to pray over you. But let's choose today to follow after him. Let's do it.